What up? Welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by the score, brought to you by Subway. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined in studio by Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Not too much, man. Uh, we are back, of course, to recap yet another week in the NBA, and I feel like we should kick this one off by recapping the Celtic Sixers game last night because this was a barn burner. Uh, as honestly most games between these two teams seem to be, but this one had a bit of a different outcome than I feel like we've come to expect when these teams play each other. Uh, the Celtics had won the first three meetings between them this season and 10 of the 12 games that they'd played the last two years. And the Sixers climbed back from 15 points down in this one and managed to pull it out. Uh, they get the win with you know some really clutch shot making from Jimmy Butler down the stretch and just a monster performance from Joel Embiid. So let me ask you, Cash, what did you kind of take away from this game? And did you feel like it changed your opinion of where the Sixers are at right now in the Eastern Conference pecking order and how or if they've maybe solved some of the matchup problems they've had against Boston in the past? Yeah, I think, look, I went into this game thinking that the Sixers were the better team just based on the additions they made at the deadline, obviously, how top. Uh, how much top-end talent they have compared to Boston right now. But yeah, my one question was like, let me actually see it in uh, in principle, you know, in front of me against the Celtics. There were so many things with this matchup that, that went Boston's way but maybe didn't make sense. And the perfect example of that was the way Al Horford always seemed to solve Joel Embiid. And look, I, you know, love Al Horford's game, respect his game. I know how valuable he is to that team. I know how good he is defensively, but really it didn't, it never made sense, right? Because you think of how physically dominant Joel Embiid is, a guy like Horford should not have been able to negate him the way he did these last couple of years. And I think you just finally saw Embiid crash through that door yesterday he absolutely eviscerated not just Al Horford but Aaron Baines another strong dude anyone the Celtics threw at him and I think that kind of was the eye-opening thing for me it was like okay yeah this is probably what's going to happen when they play each other you can't expect Al Horford to keep Joel Embiid in check forever so between Embiid um absolutely dominating the Celtics between again you know the fact that the Sixers just have so much more top end talent Kyrie's a great player some of the Celtics younger youngsters might be great players one day and Al Horford is still really good but the Sixers have four legitimate all-star caliber players and one legitimate MVP type caliber player they're just better they're more talented the depth isn't as much of an issue this year because the Celtics have some issues in that regard um if the Sixers get hot shooting, like that's a, you know a weakness that isn't really there anymore. I just don't really see how Boston, especially now that Philly looks like they're going to have home court. If they were to meet in the playoffs, they might not just because of the way the seating is. But I really don't see how Boston can win four out of seven in this matchup anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. I, it does seem like they're not going to play each other unless it happens in the conference final, which is not out of the realm of possibility, but I mean, they're, they're staring at two potentially pretty tough opponents in Milwaukee and Toronto in the second round. Um, I, I also think that, you know, the matchup issue was maybe a little bit overstated just because a lot of these games that Boston was winning were really, really close games. And it just came down to kind of simple execution down the stretch. And obviously that is a big advantage that they have. They are a bit of a smarter team, I think, and maybe better coached. So that's not nothing. 
but it may be overstated, you know, the gap between where these two teams are actually at. And obviously you saw what a difference it can make when Joel Embiid has a Joel Embiid type game against Boston and doesn't really let Al Horford fluster him. I mean, I do think he did most of his damage actually against other Celtics defenders, like you mentioned, against Baines, against Daniel Tice, um, and even against uh, Marcus Morris when, you know, he got switched onto him or when he got cross-matched. He... He was just beasting, and he and he shot 21 free throws in this game. And I feel like a big issue for him against Horford is he just whether it's that he hasn't gotten the benefit of the whistle that he gets against some other players, or he just like hasn't been physical or aggressive enough. He hasn't really gotten to the line as often as he tends to do. And he he came out and said after this game that he was looking to be more aggressive. And of course, he said that he considers himself the most unguardable player in the league, and and he wanted to come out and prove that against a team that a lot of people have said shuts him down, you know, better than any other does. So that was big. I actually thought Marcus Smart getting himself tossed was a bit of a turning point in this yeah, game. Kind of a clown move. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and as some people noted on Twitter, uh, you know, he, he, he seemed to flop really when he basically brushed hips with Embiid. And it was strange to see a guy get up after flopping and be so upset, uh, apparently at not getting the call that he just straight up shoved the guy to the ground uh, and took a cheap shot at him from behind. But um, for me, the coolest part of this actually was just seeing that Sixers closing lineup really clicking at the end of the game. And all four guys really got to have a moment down the stretch. Uh, Embiid had this incredible block on Kyrie Irving where uh, the Sixers were up three points um, it, with like 30 seconds left. Kyrie beat him cleanly off of the dribble and he beat him with the left hand, snaked back over to his right and looked at have a clean layup and Embiid recovered, stayed in the play, blocked him from behind. Uh, ben Simmons had a really strong driving and one layup. Uh, Tobias Harris gets a go-ahead dunk off a high-load high-low feed from Jimmy Butler. And Butler, of course, hits the dagger with five seconds left, two of his 15 points in the fourth quarter. So to see them all kind of clicking and I think just figuring out um, a bit of a hierarchy and, and figuring out how to play off of each other was really cool to see. And I think that bodes well for them. Um, but I, I don't actually want to like talk too much about the Sixers right now because I, I do want to talk about them in our next segment. But... Um, I'm just wondering, do you, like, do you have any other sort of sweeping takeaways from that game? No, not really. I mean, I think we hit it all. And I think, yeah, I know we're going to talk about the Sixers again in the next segment. But yeah, just you mentioned those four guys each having their moment, four star level players. And oh, by the way, the fifth guy in that lineup is one of the greatest shooters of all time. You know, yeah. like that, that five man lineup is a problem right now. It's going to be a problem in the playoffs. Say what you will about depth, but in the high leverage moments when only like eight guys are playing anyway and these five guys can play 38 minutes a night, like it's going to be really tough for anyone in the East to beat these guys four out of seven. Yeah, so with that, I think we can move on to Sweet versus Heat, a segment brought to you by our friends at Subway, whose new Sweet versus Heat chicken sandwiches are making people choose which side they're on. Um, If you don't know how the segment works, uh, basically... uh, Cash and I are both going to pick one sweet player who we feel like has been making some pretty sweet moves as of late and one hot team that we feel like has been tearing it up. Uh, And I, as I said, I'm going to start this off just by talking about the Sixers because even apart from this game against the Celtics, as huge as that was, I mean, this was their sixth straight win. um, And that run also included a monster win over the Bucks. And 
I, I get the sense that they're just finally starting to figure it out. And, you know, I talked about all those four guys making big plays down the stretch of that game against Boston. Um, you know, during this winning streak, they have a 115.7 offensive rating. Um, they're now three games clear of the Pacers and four up on the Celtics for the three seed in the East. So I think we can pretty comfortably say that they're going to finish in that three seed. And, you know, look, we've known for a while, ever since they made the trades that they've made, that this team just has a ton of talent. Maybe the most top-end talent in the Eastern Conference, and it was always just going to be a question of how it fit together. And I feel like we finally started to see that happen. And, you know, for one thing, Embiid has been playing out of his mind. Um, Jimmy Butler, I think, has been starting to take over a little bit larger share of the offense, especially down the stretch. I think he's kind of turned into their closer. And so I think just as they've gotten more familiar with each other, uh, they, you know, have started to get comfortable in their roles and figure out what the optimization is going to be between them. Um, what do you think, Cash, about how they've been playing lately? And again, where, where do you kind of see them slotting in compared to their Eastern Conference competition? Yeah, I mean, in terms of how they've been playing lately, you mentioned the winning streak and the the 115 plus offensive rating during that winning streak. So their starting and closing lineup, the five-man unit we've been talking about, Ben Simmons, J.J. Redick, Tobias Harris, uh, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid. If you go back to just the deadline, basically since Harris joined this team, that five-man unit's offensive rating, over 119 points per 100 possessions. As usual, a sixer starting lineup has the best uh, net rating in the league since the deadline. This team is good, man. They're In terms of how they stack up in the East, I know Milwaukee's got the larger sample size behind them, and they've obviously, you know, they've got the MVP frontrunner. They, they've got, you know, a load to handle as well with the amount of shooting they can surround Giannis with. But, man, I don't know. Like, you put these two teams in a playoff series, and again, I think I might be inclined to go with a team that just has more top-end talent and has more weapons that can take over a game, take over a series, swing a series. I think if I had to choose right now, like in terms of ranking these teams and how I think they'd fare in playoff battles against each other, I think I'd put, I might go Philly one, Toronto two, and Milwaukee down to three. Wow. I think it's more so just how much I like Philly's top end talent as opposed to slandering the Bucks. I just think they're that good. I would still point out, I, I do think their lack of traditional point guard play stands out sometimes. And there, there are times when, you know, Tobias Harris is, taking a large share of the offense and the ball handling duties, which I don't think is necessarily ideal. Um, they have workarounds for that. And I think, you know, one of those things is just having Redick there as basically a dribble handoff nuclear option, uh, which negates the need for on-ball creation. Like you don't need an off-the-bounce initiator when you have a guy like Redick who can basically generate good looks just by pulling the trigger out of those DHOs, you know, or catching and shooting off of pin downs. Because, you know, off-ball creation, I think, when you have a player who's as good at it as Redick, uh, can be just as valuable. But I, I also think that they maybe don't use Simmons as a screener as much as they should. And I think part of the reason for that is that they don't have a pick-and-roll point guard. And, you know, doing so with Harris and Butler just, you know, as isn't necessarily quite as viable an option because those guys aren't elite passers. So um, there's that. But, you know, I also like the fact that now they aren't quite as reliant on Redick offensively as they were before. And so if he's getting targeted defensively, like they can just swap him out in crunch time and, and throw James Ennis in there, which they did for a spell against the Celtics. 
and suddenly they don't really have a weak spot to attack defensively. I think, you know, defending point guards can still be an issue in those configurations, but like you can basically, you know, now that they have Harris, use him as that kind of off ball threat and leave Redick on the bench and, and then you're running out a jumbo lineup where, you know, you don't really have much of a soft spot defensively. So they have a ton of versatility, uh, a ton of size, and just a lot of options. I think, you know, for me, I would just like to see them using a few more sort of pick and roll combinations and seeing what they can get. Um, because as much as as much as much running their offense through Embiid in the post can be really, really effective, uh, if, if something happens like an Al Horford is taking him out of the game, his his passing out of the post is fine. It's just pretty straightforward, you know, and it's he'll make the obvious pass and he'll do it well, but he's not making passes that are like one step ahead of the defense uh, and like diming up shooters on the perimeter. So um, I guess that's one thing that I would, I would kind of look at and circle and say, you know, if there's a reason that I'm not as bullish right. on them as an Eastern Conference favorite, that would be it. But I just think they're playing great right now, and, and as they continue to to get comfortable playing with each other, they're only going to get better. Yeah. Before we move on to uh, to my hot team of the week, I did want to mention quickly, like, you know, we were talking there about, like, how the East stacks up from the playoffs. We didn't really mention the Celtics in that conversation. And and to well, be honest, rightfully so, this team, I just want to point out, this team needs to go 7-3 and three to finish the season to even win 50 games. This was a team people thought was going to coast to 60. Well, some people, Bostonians, <laughs> thought they were going to coast to 60. They're going to struggle to even win 50. Um, anyway. Well, I mean, you. I, I'm pretty sure that you took the over on 58 and a half before the season. No? I most certainly did not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I did not. We'll have to go back and listen yeah. to that episode. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think a lot of people were comfortably taking that over at the start of the season. I wasn't one of them, but I also said that I wouldn't have been surprised if they'd hit the over. I mean, I definitely had high hopes for this team, and I did pick them to finish as the number one seed in the East. And, I mean, this is maybe a topic for a different podcast, but, yeah, I don't really... I, I It's not that I wouldn't put them in that mix. Like, they're obviously going to be there in the second round and are going to be a pain in the ass for whichever team they play in the East semis, but... I agree. Like, I, I don't put them exactly on the same level as I put Toronto, Milwaukee, and Philly right now. Like, I think those teams, when you're talking about favorites to make the finals, are, are a slight cut above Boston right now. A team that uh, doesn't have to worry about struggling to get 50 wins because they're pretty much already there. The Denver Nuggets. That's my hot team of the week. So, on top of just being hot right now, they've won four straight games. Their last two wins were against the Pacers and a big win at Boston, which was big. Um, I just wanted to shout out the Nuggets for the hot season they've had in general and how resilient they've been, kind of picking themselves back up out, off the mat after two heartbreaking regular seasons the last couple of years, being mathematically eliminated on the final night of the regular season. Um, credit the organization for sticking with Mike Malone because I think a lot would have cut bait at that point. Mike Malone, I think, has gotten better. The organization is getting better. The team is getting better. This is the only team in the West... Okay, including Golden State. The, the Nuggets are the only team in the West, top end on both ends of the court. Um, I think their offense just functions really well together. Everyone seems to know their role. Sure, once in a while, Jamal Murray gets a little maybe too shot happy, but for the most part, I think it all functions well um, within it itself. They have a 
borderline MVP candidate type player at the top in Nikola Jokic. And yeah, I know people are going to talk about they're not proven in the playoffs. They're still a young team. I don't think they scare anyone per se out of the West contenders. But give them their due when it's deserved, and it's very much deserved. This team's half a game out of the number one seed in the West right now. And I don't know. People appreciate it, but I don't really know if they appreciate it enough what they've done this season. I agree. It's kind of been all season long like wow the nuggets are playing great but nobody's really afraid of them and they're not really going to make noise in the playoffs and in some senses that's fair and in some senses it isn't because i think they've proven anything that you could have asked them to prove they've beaten quality competition uh they've gotten it done at both ends of the floor and you know we've talked enough about Jokic and what he's done this year he's obviously been brilliant but paul Millsap has looked so good over the last few weeks um how is paul Millsap still maybe the most underrated player and it's kind of crazy like yeah i mean like his offensive game i think isn't what it was but right. defensively I, you know i haven't seen much drop off and again especially in the last couple of weeks i just think he's looked so spry at that end of the floor and he's obviously been a huge part of why they've managed to cobble together a top 10 defense in spite of some of their limitations and you know their decision to play this pretty aggressive style uh wouldn't be possible without him i mean he is the guy who is often applying ball pressure and forcing turnovers and you know making rotations and helping at the rim and i think to me the one big question that I have about them going into the playoffs is like, do you tw- do you trust their wings? Because I actually trust Jokic. Like, I don't worry about what he's going to look like in a postseason setting. You know, even the defensive concerns, it's like they've proven that they can find a way to paper over those. And yes, there are always going to be particular players who can exploit it. But, you know, you live with what you have to live with and you find ways to make it work. I just think you look at their wing core and Gary Harris... Uh, started the season really, really strong and then got injured. And since he came back, he hasn't really looked like the same guy. He hasn't shot the ball quite as well. Um, I don't think he's defended quite as well. And stepping up in his place are like Malik Beasley, who's been great, um, you know, and Torrey Craig and Will Barton. But Barton's been great since he came back. Yeah, they've all been really good. I just, like, do you trust those guys in the playoffs? I mean, in the traditional sense of like, do I trust them to... I don't know, to emerge as like a star in the playoffs? No, but do I trust them to just be who they are and maintain this level? Yeah, I think I do because I don't know, like I never really want to buy into the whole like this team, these guys have never been there and therefore they will crap all over themselves once the actual playoffs are like, it is possible for players to just continue what they're doing and not necessarily elevate or downgrade their play when the playoffs come and just be exactly who they are and that's all the Nuggets need for them. And again, I think like every other West quasi contender it's going to come down to the whole matchups thing and the bracket thing and if you can avoid the warriors through the first two rounds which the nuggets should be able to do because one of them is going to be first one of them is going to be second then you've got a legitimate shot to get to the west finals and at the same time just because of how tight the west is if the nuggets lose a seven game first round series to okc um san antonio getting hot like yeah it'd be disappointing but i also don't think that would equal a catastrophic catastrophic failure that automatically means like Jokic failed or these role players didn't step up or Jamal Murray didn't show up for his first playoffs it could just be the West is tough and and that's how it is right and I you know getting those playoff reps will be valuable in some way no matter what happens um so yeah definitely shout out to the Nuggets um let's move on uh to our sweet players and I'm gonna start and 
my guy this week is Pascal Siakam, uh, who's coming off yet another monster performance last night against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, just absolutely put on a clinic in terms of one-on-one play and basically getting whatever he wanted at the rim, scoring at will. And uh, if you look at his last 15 games, um, because we love our arbitrary endpoints here, um, he's averaging 20.4 points, 6.8 rebounds, 4.1 assists, shooting 52.8% from the field, 40.4% from three and the Raptors have been 19.7 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. I feel like we're seeing a superstar leap from this guy. And, you know, one of the things that stood out is the Raptors aren't really staggering um, or they've started to stagger their guys' minutes. They weren't staggering their minutes so much at the start of the season. But lately, they've basically mothballed their all-bench looks. And Siakam is usually the guy who they're throwing out there. Uh, to kind of captain those transitional lineups. And so you notice when he's out there as basically the primary creator, he's not a complimentary player. Like you can run an offense through him. He is like a guy who creates his own offense at an elite level. And the one thing that I want to spotlight is just his ability to finish on the move. Like his ability to basically go full throttle in the open floor And then to have the body control and the touch to still lay the ball in, you know, regardless of the speed that he is moving at is mind bending stuff. And that like Russell Westbrook is probably the guy who has been most impressive at doing that over the years. I don't want to compare those two players, but like that is a skill that I just literally cannot comprehend. And Siakam is so good at that. And it's, there's that, and it's also his ability to finish while he's spinning in either direction, while jumping off the wrong foot, while falling down. Um, he's shooting 70% in the restricted area this season. So um, I just there there isn't a whole lot that a defender can do against that. They're just always a step slower. They're off balance. And, you know, no matter what position he's contorting his body into, he somehow manages to lay it up and in. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned he's not a complimentary player anymore because... That's a big distinction. It's one thing for a role player or an up-and-coming young player to have kind of like a breakout season in the shadows of a Kawhi Leonard, a Kyle Lowry, whatever. And yeah, sure, in terms of maybe who you'd pick right now, obviously Kawhi Leonard's the better basketball player, but there have been a number of times this season, and Wednesday night in Oklahoma City was another example, where on a court with all-stars, with superstars, with MVP-caliber players... Pascal Siakam was the best player on the court overall. And that hasn't happened once or twice. Like that, I think I've mentioned it on the show, but like one thing I do every season the last few years is I try to keep a like a running log throughout the year between trying to watch as much ball as I can. If I miss a game, you know, condensed versions, box scores, and keeping a log of who was the best player on the court in every single game. And for Siakam now, I'm up to 10 times this year, which is kind of absurd for a guy that started playing basketball seven years ago. I just think he, you mentioned the superstar leap. I I don't know what else to call it. Like, that's what we're seeing right now. This guy's the best player on the floor with all-stars around him. More often than not the last couple weeks, it's kind of crazy. And I just think when you look at the evidence, like the sample size we've got this season, what he's doing for a championship contender, I think we can call them, um, the way he's improved, even as like a catch-and-shoot, uh, corner three-point shooter, how unstoppable he looks in transition. He can be like a quasi-point forward. He can defend pretty much every position. Essentially, 
all the evidence is pointing to outside of the fact that you didn't expect Pascal Siakam to be a superstar. Guess what, guys? The evidence is pointing to Pascal Siakam kind of being a superstar. Yeah, he's definitely getting there if he's not there already. And I think, I mean, he's been what? A top, he's been easily a top 30 player in the NBA this season. Yeah. And maybe better than that. Um, and to your point about his you know, evolving catch and shoot game. He's shooting 40.6% from the corners this season. Um, still hasn't quite found that above the break three. Still can't really shoot it off the dribble. So I feel like that's maybe the next stage in his evolution. And the one thing I'll say is I do think his defense is a bit overrated. Yeah, he can credibly guard four positions. Um, and that definitely boosts his profile on that end. And like the versatility is very nice. But like, I'd say he's average to slightly above average at guarding those four positions and there are certain things that he does really well like his closing speed getting out to challenge shots is incredible and he has some blocks on three-pointers that are just astounding um but aside from that like i don't think that he has one elite defensive skill um it's more so just that he's like capable of doing pretty much anything um which is obviously extremely valuable uh but i do think his impact at that end can be a tad overstated and he is still just a little bit too jumpy and hyperactive sometimes. But, I mean, that's, that's that's really all the nits that I can pick. Like, he is a ridiculous talent. And like you mentioned about him only having played basketball for a few years, uh, he's come so far so fast. And it just, it, it just makes you kind of dream on what he could look like a couple years from now. Yeah, and, and you know, to kind of counter the argument you were making about the defense, I agree with you in the sense that I think sometimes if you watch him defend one-on-one, he's a solid defender, but yeah, he's not he's not um, the best three or four guys you can think of in that regard. But I think what you mentioned, like him being that frenetic defensively and his closeout speed and his ability to kind of play as a rover sometimes on defense, like to me, that is an elite defensive skill. You know, there are the Al Horfords of the world or even the Marcus Sauls of the world who their their defensive uh, impact is about like positioning, IQ, and those things. And obviously those are elite skills. Sometimes it just helps to be able to jump out of the gym and close down guys in the blink of an eye. And Pascal Siakam can do those things. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't deny that. I just think, um, I don't know. And maybe this is a straw man. I just feel like I've seen a lot of people kind of referring to him as an elite defender. And I don't think he's there yet. I definitely think that he can get there. Um, but I just think that, 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 that he's a little bit overrated in that regard. But um, again, like we're, we're picking nits here because yeah. this guy has, has just made an unbelievable leap this season. And I have kind of Throughout the season, as we've done sort of our quarter season awards, mid-season awards, I've gone with De'Aaron Fox as my most improved player, and I, I can't really stand by that anymore. I think at this point, this is Siakam's award to lose. Yeah, um, with, and if anyone, I'd say now it's D'Angelo Russell that's probably giving him the most competition. I think Russell's probably surpassed Fox in a lot of people's ballots. Yeah, we can talk about Russell later. Um, but in the meantime, Cash, uh, who is your sweet player of the week? I'm going with Dame. Damian Lillard. Worthy choice. Uh, Three straight 30-point games. His last seven games, he's averaging 30 points and 10 assists. 49% from the field, 42% from deep, 90% from the line. The Blazers are 5-2 during that stretch. They're only a half game out of third. Ho-hum, here are the Blazers every year. I've said this like 11 times this season on this show, but it is what it is, man. At the end of the year, the Blazers are going to be there. Dame and CJ get it done. Nurkic has had a nice um, year of development. The bench has come along, but at the center of it all of course is Damian Lillard and his ability to warp a defense um 
you know, he's not going to get any, like, first place MVP votes or anything, but look out for Dame kind of sneaking in as that, like, fourth, fifth place guy in the MVP ballots. Because you look at his numbers throughout the year and the way the Blazers have performed with him on the court, it's pretty absurd. Um, I don't want to get into the whole, like, Dame Lillard always has this chip on his shoulder because, like, no one gives him his credit, but it does feel a little bit like this year, at least, because of this season Giannis and the Bucks are having, because of, obviously, the season James Harden's having, even the two-way play of Paul George up until the last few weeks. And Jokic even, it does feel a little bit like Dame's season has been a little underappreciated. And man, just go look at his numbers. Watch him play down the stretch because it's super fun. He's my hot player of the week. Sweet player of the week, sorry. I agree with all of that. And I think, you know, to your point about him being overlooked, I, I feel like maybe a lot of that just has to do with how last season ended for him. He had a rough, rough series against the Pelicans and... I feel like, you know, a lot of people are in sort of show me mode where they want to see him do it in the postseason. And to an extent, that's fair. But if you have watched Lillard this season, like he's just been on another level. And what you're saying about ho-hum, the Blazers in the second half, like they're going to get themselves into the mix and, you know, be the third seed. That's true. But also they're better this year than they've been in the past few years. And Lillard is better than he's been. And the past few games with CJ McCollum sidelined, He's just been ridiculous. And and his mastery of the pick and roll right now is second to almost none in the NBA. And like the, the number of ways that he can beat basically any pick and roll coverage, like it's not quite James Harden, but he's become a much more advanced passer. Um, his dribble drive game has improved. Obviously, his pull up shooting is obviously going to be on point. Like he just has so many different ways to score and to beat you, whether it's, you know, by himself or or by using his teammates. And I, I just, you know, I can't say it enough. He gets a little bit better every single season. And um, given the level that he's gotten to, the fact that he's still improving probably doesn't get appreciated enough. He's having his most efficient season ever. Yeah. Um, it, it, like I said, it's just been absurd, but it's been super fun to watch, man. Absolutely. Um we're going to bounce around the league with some make or miss in a second. Uh, but before we do that, just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we'd also encourage you to check out the score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, Fantasy Football. Uh, And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, uh, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. So let's get into some make or miss cash and bounce around the league. And uh, for the uninitiated, uh, the way the segment works is I'm going to make a statement. uh, And if cash agrees, he will call it a make. And if he disagrees, it'll be a miss. So let's start here. Um, Malcolm Brogdon's injury means the Bucks are no longer the favorites to come out of the East. Um, and, and Brogdon's out for six to eight weeks with a partial uh, plantar fascia tear in his foot, which could keep him out uh, up to and possibly including the second round of the playoffs. So, uh, Cash, having already said that you think the Sixers <laughs> might be the favorite to come out of the East... Is this a make or a miss? So here's the thing. I'm going to say it's a miss, but with an asterisk, because I don't think this one injury necessary is the reason they're not the favorites. Look, I, I respect the hell out of what the Bucks have done this season. I've made the comparison before saying if you look at their numbers, um, a lot of their advanced metrics, it is very similar to the Warriors in 2014-15 when everything was pointing to them being a championship team, except no one expected it. 
Having said that, I just, as we mentioned, the Sixers to me have too much top end talent. The Raptors, I still think Kawhi is another gear he's going to get to in the playoffs. And I think the Raptors are a better top to bottom team. I wouldn't pick Milwaukee regardless to come out of the East right now, not because I'm doubting what they've done this season, just I, I don't think they have enough. And yeah, the Brogdon injury um, it kind of magnifies that for me, right? They lose another weapon. Brogdon was really sneaky important for this team. He was shooting the lights out. He kind of kept things humming for their offense at times. The injury is big, but I don't think that's the reason they don't come out of the East. Okay. I'm surprised you'd say that just because basically... Every single metric you could find would point to the Bucks being the best team in the NBA this Yeah, season. that's what I'm saying. It's similar to the Warriors four years ago, right? When, like, the first year they had became a, a championship contender under Kerr, much like Budenholzer with the Bucks this year, everything was pointing to them being a contender, except we just didn't expect it. I'm, right. I'm fully accepting that. The Bucks look, play everything like the best team in basketball that could and should win the championship. But then I look at the roster, and I'm just trying to, like, match them up against the other top two teams in the East, and I... I don't see it in a seven-game series. It's interesting. I, I do hear people make that comparison to that Warriors team a lot. And I feel like if you're doubting the Bucs, probably the more apt comparison is like the 2008-2009 Cavs, who also just had a ridiculous regular season. with 66 games that year. Yeah, and they were like, you know, I think fourth on, on offense and, and uh, first on defense, which is basically where the Bucs have been at all season long. And again, everything pointed to them being the best team in the league. And they ran roughshod over their first two playoff opponents and then ran into the Orlando Magic. Uh, and I don't know, maybe something similar like that happens to the Bucks, where it's just like they have this one transcendent talent, but the secondary talent isn't quite there. I, I still think that they are the favorites to come out of the East, but I, I do think that Brogdon has been a really important part of what they do. And I don't know that they really have a way to fully replace that. Um, they do have some decent guard depth. Like Pat Connaughton's actually been pretty good this year. Uh, George Hill hasn't really. Um, so I guess it's just a question of like how they how they try to patch things up there because what they've done the past couple of games and, and granted Giannis hasn't played the last game, but um, before that when he did play it was like. They basically bumped Middleton down to the two and inserted Miritich into the starting lineup. So they had just this jumbo starting lineup with uh, Brooke Lopez, Miritich, and Giannis, which is interesting, but I, I wonder if you know that's going to be sustainable defensively. And Miritich also now hurt. Right, exactly. Um, so it, it might be tough for them to just fill in at that two spot um, because yeah, I just don't, I don't know how much you really trust George Hill at this point in time, and you know Tony Snell hasn't been particularly good this season. So uh, they had so much just like consistency and reliability with Brogdon there, and I worry that without that uh, they may find things tough. But I, again, I just I, I have a lot of faith in this team, and they've been so consistently good all season long that I don't think I can bump them off of their perch as East favorites right now. One thing I did want to mention before we move on to is the Bucs are probably still going to finish with the best overall record in the NBA, but they're 5-5 five and five in the last 10. They're sliding a bit. It's very possible that this is the first time in a while no NBA team wins 60 games. Yeah, well, I mean, when was the last time that happened? It's been a while. I can Let's keep going through make or miss <laughs> while I do that research and okay. we'll find out. But yeah, no, the, the, the parity, at least in the regular season this year, has been pretty good. 
It has, for sure. And um, I think you're seeing that, especially in the Western Conference, where much like last year, uh, but even more so because last year was sort of stratified still with the Rockets and the Warriors comfortably in those top two seeds. Uh, but everything's just sort of bunched up right now, um, which leads me to my next uh, make or miss statement. The Thunder drawing the Warriors in the first round would be a worse outcome for Golden State than it would for OKC. Come on now. Come on now. That's a miss. Um could the Thunder perhaps bother the Warriors a little in the first round more than they'd like to be bothered? Sure, but come on. This is this is the difference for OKC, again, as we mentioned, between having a legitimate you know ambitions of the Western Conference Finals as opposed to their hope is, let's try to steal two games in the first round. Uh-huh. This is definitely a worse outcome for the Thunder. Not to put too much stock in one game, but did you see what the Warriors, without Kevin Durant, did to the Thunder last week? Destroyed them. I... I, I see where you're coming from with it because I do think they're a tougher matchup than most teams would be for the Warriors in that first round, but come on. Um, okay, well, first off, just to, like, to provide some context here. So the Thunder have fallen into a tie for eighth place in the West, which is crazy because a few weeks ago, they were comfortably in second place and, and a first round meeting with Golden State would have seemed unthinkable at that time. Um, but right now, they're staring at that possibility and their schedule doesn't get a whole lot easier down the stretch. So... This could very well happen. And what I mean when I say this, and, and for the record, I'm, I'm going to call it a make just to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Like the expectations for the Warriors are so drastically different than they are for the Thunder. And, you know, for Golden State, it's basically title or bust. And for the Thunder, it's obviously, you know, I think like, what's a successful season for them? Win around, right? Like they get to the second round. I think that's a, a, I a think successful for the year. Thunder, it's get to the West Finals. I really, really? do. Yeah, I... I don't know if that's a realistic goal. I think, you know, we'd come in and say that's probably good for them. But I think internally, I think they think it's West Finals or bust. I really do. I I just, I think that there would be less pressure on them. And for Golden State, who, you know, has this imperative to win this one last championship before Durant presumably heads out the door, I don't think they'd be particularly pleased to see the Thunder in the first round and for that to be the way that they kick off their playoff chase. Now, maybe it has the inverse effect where it's like they get their act together in a hurry and stop dicking around like they have been for most of the season and that just whips them into gear. You know, they come through and win in five games and it's curtains for the rest of the Western Conference. But I just sort of think that the Thunder can cause a lot of problems for the Warriors and... Um, th- this is contingent on on the Thunder being healthy, which they haven't really looked lately. I mean, Paul George has not looked remotely the same since coming back from that shoulder injury. Steven Adams also hasn't looked great to me for a few weeks now. Like something's just off with them. Yeah, he, he's he's just like not defending at the level that he was earlier in the season. He looks a bit sluggish. But let's say if they are in tip top shape, I think they pose more problems for the Warriors than almost any other team. And for that to just be Golden State's first round opponent, I, I think would be suboptimal. And it, it, like, if that happens for the Thunder, obviously it sucks because that means the first round exit. But I just think at that point they're like, all right, let's we have nothing to lose. Like, let's give them a series. Whereas for the Warriors, it's like that might take a chunk out of them as they're looking to basically gear up for a long playoff run. And to your point, I will say this: if if the Thunder can even make it interesting through like three games like it's 2-1 Warriors and game four is really competitive and there's tense moments maybe all like the rest of the contenders need is that one sliver of an opening where like there's a dramatic moment in that first round that ruins that chemistry again like for real you never know right it's yeah maybe it's a tense moment between Draymond and KD maybe Boogie gets upset because he's pulled off the floor for some like 
at least if you give them a competitive series, it at least opens the door a crack that, you know, there might be um, a crack in the foundation. Right. And I think there's also just belief, you know, that right. magic elixir that if you're another team watching and you see the Thunder kind of punching them in the mouth and giving them a fight, then maybe that inspires some belief that you can actually get this done. And I just think if the Warriors want to sort of rest up and stay healthy as they can throughout the playoffs like a first round meeting with the thunder is not the way to do that because that team is physical as all hell and they can seriously beat you up so um i I, yeah i mean i just think obviously it would be suboptimal for both teams but i'm gonna say it would be worse for the warriors um make or miss d'angelo russell is going to get a max contract this summer oh that's a make Um, okay we can argue about whether he's worth the max contract, but is he going to get one? Um, yeah, look, he's going to be low on the totem pole in terms of like free agent priorities this summer just because of how many superstars are free agents and all-stars. Um, but there's not a doubt in my mind that someone's going to give him a max deal. And if it's not re-signing with the Nets, someone else will come along who maybe didn't have the summer they envisioned um, and hand him that money. But he's getting paid this year. Um, Want to be a little devil's advocate again? <laughs> Well, I I just, look, there are so many quality point guards in the league right now. The argument in favor is there's going to be a good deal of cap space out there. Uh, A lot of teams are carving it out and not that many teams are actually going to land their desired free agents. So, you know, the ones that don't are going to be left to pick over the scraps. And, you know, I don't want to disparage D'Angelo Russell by calling him scraps, but compared to some of the other free agents that are going to be hitting the market, um... You know, he's obviously, he's like a tier three guy to me. And I personally, I think it would be a mistake to max him out. Like he's, he's young and I do think he's having a great season and could potentially get even better. But I mean, as, as much as he has kind of like elevated his game this year and he's scoring in bunches and like having some incredible games, He's still at 53% true shooting this year. Like, he has not been a particularly efficient scorer. He's still not getting and to the line at all. Just in case people are wondering, average true shooting, I think, right now is like 54-ish. 55. Okay, so there you go. So yeah. he's below average. I mean, for a point guard, it's right. lower. Yeah. But even so, um, I mean, that's high volume and not particularly high efficiency. And he's also a minus defender. So I just don't... like. I, I just wonder if a lot of hot shooting, and maybe it's not just hot shooting, maybe he just is this kind of shooter now, um, has maybe skewed the perception of him a little bit. I will say, like, I still do really like him as a playmaker. He's got great vision uh, and is just a really solid passer. So that helps. Um, I I personally wouldn't feel comfortable maxing him out, but I agree that some team probably will. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I... I I think part of that is also induced by the fact that the 2020 class is not very strong. So if you are a team with free agent aspirations and, and he's the guy you're looking at, I think you can convince yourself that like we're not going to have a better shot at a player who's better than this for the next little while, so we might as well take a swing. Uh, last one here, make or miss, the Grizzlies are right to want to convey their first round pick this year. Um, if you haven't been paying attention, the Grizzlies came through with a huge win, uh, a last second win in overtime over the Rockets last night. Uh, they've been playing pretty well since they traded Gasol. Uh, Valanchunas has been outstanding since coming over. DeLon Wright's been really good as well. And they're winning games. And, you know, all the reporting suggests that they want to convey their pick this year, which will go to Boston if it falls outside the top eight. Uh, so they're going to continue trying to win games. And that pick 
if it doesn't convey this year, uh, becomes top six protected in 2020 and then unprotected after that. So, Cash, do you think they're right to want to convey it this year? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, look, the protections get worse as time goes on, right? They give it up this year outside the top eight. Next year, the seven pick could go to buy. The year after that, it's unprotected. So, yeah, they're absolutely right to want to convey it this year because they're not bad enough, most likely, to get in the mix for one of the, like, top two or three actual franchise-changing players in Zion Williamson, potentially R.J. Barrett and John Morant. Um, so, you know, whatever. Let the pick go this year. Embrace the tank next year, which is probably what they're going to have to do. Maybe trade Mike Conley um, and see what, what that brings you in terms of young assets. You've got Jaron Jackson. Yeah, I think they're right to do it. I think they should go all in on the tank next year. The tank that they never really fully embraced this year because they mm-hmm. went into the season tr- still trying to compete with Conley and Gasol and truly start to rebuild that way. Right. I mean, I I generally agree. I think my one counter to that would be, like, you have a chance to get a top eight pick this year. So why wouldn't you want to take that opportunity, you know, and kind of kickstart this rebuild now? Uh, but I guess if they want to trade Conley next year and they see themselves being, you know, a team that could finish, say, seventh, uh, they don't want to lose out on that pick. But I mean, if they really want to embrace the tank next year, then they should probably feel pretty confident about their ability to stay in the top six anyway. And in that case, it's like, you know, then you have a a pair of top 10 picks this year and next. And I mean, in any situation to to give away a top 10 pick is pretty suboptimal for a team that's trying to rebuild. So um, I almost wonder if they wouldn't be better off like keeping that pick this year, trading Conley next year, keeping the pick next year again and then hopefully when the pick is unprotected Ugh. that's when they're ready to sort of make that leap um but that's a little bit far-fetched and that you know there are a lot of ifs and um I, I don't you know i think maybe you just sort of want to have the sure thing of knowing that you have your pick in pocket for the next couple of years yeah because what if you get like the number eight pick this year trade conley Man, get the number six pick next year. Now you've got an unprotected pick to give the Boston. Yeah. You don't really have many fruits of this rebuild. Then you're probably gonna like get the number one or two pick or something, just the way luck goes. Like, I just think if if they want to go through this proper rebuild, it's probably even just like psychologically for the front office a lot easier and better if they. That's not even on their mind having to send this pick to Boston. You know, it's just like out of the way. Okay, we have all our assets. Let's go forward. Right. Well, I mean, as of now, they are projected to keep that pick. So we'll see what happens and how many more games they can squeak out down the stretch. Uh, but for us, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon signing out. We'll talk to you all next week.